Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. NCA typically holds public programs twice each year, and these public programs serve to disseminate relevant information about communication to public audiences. These programs are open to community members, members of the media, communication teachers and students, and anyone interested in learning more about communication. Past programs have focused on topics such as the miscommunication of science and health communication in rural and minority communities. NCA's Spring 2020 public program was to be held at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. However, the COVID-19 pandemic led to the cancellation of that on-site conversation. NCA remains dedicated to providing our members with access to these important public programs while we navigate this global health crisis. So we're presenting our spring public program, Communicating in the Battlegrounds, Politics in the Purple States, as an episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. So in a presidential election year, the select number of states are viewed as critical players in the election's outcome. And with the 2020 election approaching, Today's conversation features five expert panelists who will discuss the use of political communication in our elections and the effects it has on public opinion. I'm Sumana Chattopadhyay. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University in the College of Communication. I'm also the chair of NCA's Political Communication Division. I'm Young Mi Kim at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Robert Craig, I'm the executive director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin and located in Milwaukee. I'm Tom Zalik, an assistant professor at Concordia University, Chicago. I'm Sean Turner, a professor of strategic communication at Michigan State University. Now, you can learn more about all of our great panelists by looking at their full bios at our website, natcom.org slash public programs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. The premise of today's panel is that political communication in battleground states differs from the communication in clearly red and blue states. So do you agree with this idea? And if so, what differences do you think exists in this type of communication? Yeah, I agree about like a better ground uh, communication is different than like a non-better ground. Better ground means, by definition, it means more competition among the parties and the candidates, political action committees, and other political actors. So that means it leads to more information. So if we just compare like a sheer volume of political campaigns on broadcast to TV, we'll see a lot of like ads in better grounds compared to non-better grounds. So research in political behavior published in 2008 shows that and you know, confirms that broadcast advertising is much more have like a lot more, I guess, you know, the high level of the volumes in better ground states than non-better ground states. My research in 2012 in published in communication research also confirmed that idea. And then second, 
I would say better ground messages could be more diverse in terms of issues or topics because of a competition. That means you need to address like a more people, like a different interest as well. And it could be potentially more divisive, divisive, like the more wet issues like abortion, immigration and racial conflict, like those kind of issues are more found in a better ground state than non-better ground state. So, for example, in 2018, my research team conducted Facebook ad data research, and then we examined like a 5 million Facebook ads exposed to nearly 10,000 people representing the U.S. voting age population. We found that better ground states, particularly Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, are the targeted the most with the divisive issues. Interesting. So with divisive issues and we have an increase in advertising, are there any other factors that you think might be present in battleground states separate from, say, non-battleground states in terms of communication? Sumana. Yeah, a couple of things. One is that I'm going to go back to the divisiveness of issues because some of my research also looks at issue ownership. So looking at red states versus blue states versus purple states, we have found in some of our past research that in battleground states, both parties tend to issue trespass more, meaning they go into the territory of the other parties' owned issues. So like Democrats own environment, healthcare, education, Republicans own taxes, crime, so budget, government size. So oftentimes what happens is, and particularly because Republicans trespass quite a bit in general at the state level because a lot of the issues they own are national. But in the battleground, it's not just that the Republicans trespass, Democrats trespass too. For example, we had a finding from Missouri from governor's races for the last couple of cycles where a lot of the candidates there were actually talking red issues which is not necessarily always something Democrats do because Republicans trespass more at the state level. But in battlegrounds, that happens. Another difference that also I have found or read about is with horse race. Because these are states that are competitive and the poll numbers are very important, we have found out, or not in my research, but I've read articles that have talked about how, as a result of this, a lot of times battleground states have more discussion on poll numbers and also about candidates and which event they went to, who they talked to, interviews rather than issues themselves. So it's not necessarily that they get a lot of discussion on issues, particularly, especially from the media side. It's more about the poll numbers, who is leading, who is doing what event. So there's that difference too. That's fascinating. Yeah. Tom. Yeah. And so with the idea of the horse race, I think one of the other things we see in media frames is the idea of spectacle. So even if it's anecdotally, we can take a look at the recent 2020 primary election. So with it, with coverage from you know the national media, but local media, it's looking at, oh, look at the giant lines outside of all the Milwaukee high schools talking about, here's the shutdown of certain polling sites. So with it, you know, shifting that idea of the horse race, not just between the parties, but also with here's how voters are going to the polls. Here's the troubles or difficulties that they're going to face. And so it's almost kind of like, you know, trying to get this, you know, mini crisis coverage going on by saying these long lines are indicative of this faulty voting system or, you know, gerrymandering that's gone wild. So with it, I think, you know, whether it's Wisconsin or Iowa or even Pennsylvania or Florida, we tend to see that emphasis on the spectacle, especially leading up to election day, but also on election day, just sort of looking at that as anecdotally 
here's what's going on. I'm wondering if you can think of other sort of non-COVID-19 examples of spectacle. I'm wondering, you know, Shimana mentioned all of the events that get a lot of coverage as a dimension of the horse race thing. And we seem to be in an era, at least at the presidential level, of sort of large rallies being the dominant characteristic. I'm wondering if that's consistent with what you're saying about spectacle, Tom. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it's, I mean, it can be something as broad as a Trump rally that gathers a lot of attention. I know that before being in my current position, I worked in a rural part of the state of Wisconsin. And so with it, you know, there was a Trump rally that was like the formal rally. But then in 2016, there were the rallies outside the rally. People would gather and it would kind of be like, you know, before a Brewers game, people would have that park your truck, have a grill and sort of protest. (laughs) Yeah, it's a tailgating party when it comes to here's people talking about issues. These are the real Wisconsins that are out, you know, talking about how to make the country better. And so that's something that I think is lost in terms of national media coverage. But I know local media, especially in central Wisconsin, covered that. It became a really big part of talking about, at least in 2016, here's what's different about this race versus other, you know, states or other uh, sort of more urban environments. Well, and I know that in Wisconsin, certainly, and in most of you are from Wisconsin, live there, or in Sean's case, are are living in Michigan right now. I'm wondering about the urban-rural divide and the extent to which that plays into the dynamics surrounding political communication in uh, battleground states, and if that's actually a factor or if that's just something that those of us on the coasts invent as a dimension of your political communication in the heartland. Robert, I don't know, you indicated some interests there. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a definite factor, but I think it's probably been overinterpreted in the media frame where we've overcorrected on it. And it has critically important features, that is, Like if you look at something like the protests over Act 10, the uh, changes in public employee unions, literally it was incomprehensible to people in Milwaukee and Madison how the rest of the state was processing it, unless you understood the rural divide and the idea they were getting fewer resources than everyone else, which isn't actually empirically true, and the idea that public employees and teachers were part of that, right? And kind of the hidden dog whistle in rural consciousness in Wisconsin that's been found by some ethnographers, which is is that the people who are irresponsible, so, you know, it's a dog whistle, are the people taking the resources in Milwaukee and Madison, for example. And so it's definitely a driving force, but there's a question of whether it's as decisive as the suburban-urban divide in the Milwaukee metro area, which is shifting more than, frankly, than the urban-rural divide. Mm. I do think that it creates kind of a polysemic kind of communication. That is, the Mm. same message is apprehended differently by different audiences, and that greatly complicates what political strategic communication would need to do. And I think there are probably still a lot of unforeseen consequences of certain messages that go to more audiences or different audiences that are understood by the auditor. Yeah, I know we just saw some of that play out, I think, in in Michigan 
<laughs> just the other day with the protests in Lansing. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. It strikes me that Michigan is even perhaps more nuanced in terms of this urban, suburban, rural kind of dynamic than even Wisconsin. Yeah, no, listen, I, I think it is more nuanced, but however, it is, it's there, it's evident, it's clear to see. You know, one of the uh, things that we're, we're doing at Michigan State University is we're looking at how local media cover the same issue based on whether or not they're in a rural market versus an urban market. And these protests the other day are a great example of, of what we see there. If you look at a local media in the northern part of the state, the protests in Lansing were characterized as very much as a, you know, people kind of taking back the narrative and standing up for what they felt was right and pushing back on government. Whereas you look at this, you know, the very same issue in, in and around Detroit, Wayne, Macomb, and other counties in that area, it was a very different take on this issue. And it was much more focused on the issue of the health risks that were associated with people going out and protesting. Now, you've got the same message here, but you've got it through a couple of different lenses. One of the interesting things here in Michigan is that it's, it's increasingly the case that because we have so many people in the southern part of the state who go up north, people tend to get their news and information for wherever they're going or wherever they're interested in. So you have a lot of, pe- a lot of people in the southern part of the state in that media market who are actually getting their news from the northern part of the state, and we're actually seeing that have an impact on the way they view these issues in a broader context, simply because of where they're getting the information. So that's a little more nuanced, but that divide is definitely there. I think sometimes we define our understanding of battleground states and politics in the battleground states based on what you alluded to were these somewhat subtle, but often not so subtle differences in the news media coverage Mm -hmm. of how politics plays out in these battleground states. In fact, the idea of a battleground state may in fact be a media construction. So I'm wondering if anybody has any thoughts on how the media is shaping this notion of how politics plays out in battlegrounds. Yeah, well, I'll take just the first step at that, just to to talk about it from a national news media perspective. You know, I I spent a lot of time working with and around the three major uh, cable news networks. And, you know, it's not going to, it won't come as a surprise to anyone that the different networks cover battleground states through a different lens from a different Mm -hmm. perspective. But I think what's really interesting is when you sit in those production meetings and you talk about what you're going to focus on in battleground states, those conversations are very different than the conversations about what you're going to focus on in clearly red states and clearly blue states. And we talked earlier about the horse race issue. Look, I think that when we talk about uh, red states and blue states, and there's some research that would contradict this, but in those conversations, people really tend to focus on the issues. What's driving this red state? And so people who, who are in red states who watch the national news media and get information about what's happening in that state and their states tend to get more information about issues. Whereas if you're in a battleground state, you tend, and I think this was alluded to earlier, you tend to get more information about the horse race of that battleground state. And so in battleground states, oftentimes people miss a lot of the information about the major issues. Now, I will say across the board in the national news media, there is a deficit of focus on, on real issues that matter. But I think that when you look at who's getting more versus who's getting less, the clearly blue and red states are getting more versus the battleground states. Yeah, Robert. I was going to say, I think that the idea of a battleground state can't resist as a rhetorician, that it is a media symbolic construction. 
And in fact, it's created in Wisconsin, at least a persistent battleground state, and there may be newer battleground states where this isn't the case. It changed Wisconsin identity. Wisconsinites love the Packers, the, the dairy state, and we're a battleground state. And it goes to, it stands to reason our votes are worth more in a national election than those in neighboring Illinois, mm-hmm. just like the Packers are better than the Bears. And so it's like early primary states, the way Iowa and New Hampshire, that their identity is tied up in it. And I think one of the things that does is it creates a consciousness of how is the nation viewing us? Because the identity is tied up in the fact that all the national media are landing in Wisconsin. That isn't just the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in our neighborhood, it's New York Times and it's CNN. And so I think that creates kind of a notion of the persona of the national audience that's looking at us. And I really do think, say, in this pandemic primary, as it was called, there was a real consciousness that Wisconsin looked bad and Wisconsin Republicans looked bad and Speaker Robin Voss of the Assembly in his hazmat suit saying everything was safe you know, that that was an embarrassment to them because the national media and the national audience saw it that way. Right. Somebody could probably write a really interesting dissertation about the transitions of states. So Virginia used to never be a battleground state, and now suddenly it's it's really purple out here on the, on the East Coast. And I think Wisconsin similarly has seen some of that. And, you know, there's always talk amongst Democrats, at least, that, ooh, maybe Texas or maybe Georgia could be battleground states. There's a transitional process that happens with these states, and that's fascinating. Anybody else want to weigh in on this notion of how the battleground state idea or construction is somehow having a really interesting impact on our political lives and our political discussions. So yeah, also kind of goes back to the word battle, you know, (laughs) because it's the attacks, you know, when the very beginning we talked about how ad coverage, like there are way more ads running in these states. And one of the things I have heard consistently from my political communication students, especially those from Ohio, is that by the time they get to election day, they're completely totally brain dead with all the advertising they have been exposed to. And that's a lot of attacks, you know, that they hear. And and when the candidates attack each other, which they do more in a battleground state versus in a red or a blue state, because they already have those in the bag. So those ads get talked about by the media. You know, they cover it. And also that creates more cynicism. So it's also the nature going back to the horse race and also fighting that happens between these candidates and even in their rallies, because whenever there is a rally or an event or a town hall in a battleground state, I'm guessing it's going to be on CNN or Fox or, you know, MSNBC. So they get a national audience. And so candidates also use that as a national forum. And and of course, news will cover it more. And so I, I almost feel like because of that, the people in the battlegrounds feel cynical, but also people that are non-battleground feel left out because that's the other issue about spectator states. Like they almost feel like their voice doesn't count. And so that is a, another issue, you know, which I also see on Twitter from people in the red states who want to defend themselves and say, hey, this is not what we do. I voted for this candidate, but they don't have their voice. So there's a little bit of that. So I think it's the whole fighting aspect of it, which also is a key part of being a battleground state. Young May, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how the national news media or those of us who study this stuff What do we get wrong about voters in battleground states? I mean, what don't we see 
in the national media coverage that you guys might see on the ground in those states about the voters themselves and, and what matters to them and, and how, they're, how they're perceived and what they think? Well, I just want to make a comment on sort of like the consequences of the battleground versus the non-battleground you know, communication differences. We talked about a horse race coverage in the news media. When the journalists cover elections, it tends to be more horse race style. You know, there is a volume of the studies, like a lot of it, the literature, like in there confirmed that, that it generates some cynicism about the mainstream politics in general, because this is all about competitions. Community politicians are very strategic, strategic and, you know, things like that. Another effect we could think about is, in fact, even though like the sheer volume uh, is much higher, you know, cap- sheer volume of campaign information is much higher in better ground states compared to that of like a non-better ground state, people living in the better ground states are more confused about the campaigns and election processes is because they are getting conflicting messages. And so some studies shows that you know, people have a very ambivalent attitude about the two candidates because during the general election studies because of this horse race and the conflict messages. One of my studies shows that, in fact, as the time gets closer to the election day, people have to, people feel urged to resolve their uncertainty and ambivalence. So as a result, people all the way go back to their original predisposition. So, in fact, the battleground get people who received more information about campaigns are more polarized. So that's like a sort of like a paradox of this, like a, you know, the high volume of campaign information in battleground states. Now, that was all about like a m- much of this research is on conducted in a laboratory settings or more like a descriptive studies of like, you know, observation or data. And the observation or data we have to think about, all these campaign messages are based in the broadcast media. So there is very little research on like a targeted advertising or targeted messages. Even though some anecdotal evidence, like some research, recent research shows that the Russian disinformation campaigns, like so this research compared like a Russian disinformation campaigns and then Twitter and then increases, look at the increased patterns in the retweet and then parallel that pattern with the opinion poll during the election period in 2016. And then their time series analysis basically just to try to tease out causal relationship, even though it was not perfect, shows that every 25,000 retweets by like a Russian disinformation campaigns, in fact, predicted a 1% increase in like a, the preferences for Trump. So that is aggregate level analysis. My research has been looking at the, some of the individual level effects. And then we found some anecdotal evidence that like a certain types of messages like a border suppression targeting African-Americans, in fact, like a, you know, did seem to influence in a turnout rate, even though it was very marginal. Mm-hmm. It might have had some impact last week in the Wisconsin primary. I, mm-hmm. I've 
been listening to podcast commentary that said that there's some attribution to, there was a backlash effect, I guess, to the actions by the Republicans up there with regard to the Supreme Court seat in particular. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting dynamic. Okay, so one of the things that we might get wrong about battleground state voters is that they're persuadable. (laughs) It sounds to me like maybe they're less persuadable than we might originally think, which might call into question the vast amounts of spending that campaigns engage in. Anything else that we get wrong about battleground state voters? Yeah, Robert, what do you think? I mean, this follows up a little bit on the persuadability issue. That is, I think that there's a mistake being made that battleground states are controlled by moderate voters, Mm -hmm. and therefore you should tack to the center. I would describe Wisconsin anyway as having two very equally matched blue and red bases, and then a smaller number of cross-pressured voters. And so there's an issue of turnout, which is about motivating the base, but then that's complicated because that that might turn out the other base depending on what the issue is. And I think that's why Democrats lost the previous Supreme Court race when they thought bringing up the homophobic record of the right-wing justice would help them. I think it actually was used by the right to mobilize much higher turnout on their side, unfortunately, from my perspective, uh, from a communication science perspective. And then in addition to that, quite frankly, these cross-pressured voters, they're influenced by both sides. And so I've been in a lot of focus groups, and these are really are voters that voted for uh, Scott Walker, then Barack Obama, Tammy Baldwin, a very progressive U.S. senator, and then Donald Trump, and so on. And it's because, not because they're moderate, but because they're actually open to both sides. And I don't know if communication scientists like Professor Kim have found that, but it certainly seems very evident in focus groups and in the fact that there is movement You know, the fact that Wisconsin actually did go for Trump and then also for Kerry and for Gore, right, and Obama, just for example, that there's some movement, but part of it's turnout and part of it's persuasion. So, yeah, I totally agree with Dr. Robert. And there is a research that shows that cross-pressure, because, you know, by definition here, is cross-pressures have like a strong party ID, but they also have like a strong issue interest in particular issues. So, So, for example, Wisconsin gun owners who are Democrats. So they put so much emphasis on the issue of gun rights over their own party ID. So cross pressures are, in fact, like a, often like a considered to be the most persuadable voters. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past, they might not, when the p- political parties are in the booming era, there might not have been a lot of cross pressures, but we have to think about like a changing political environment. There are increasing number of cross pressures, and especially in the electoral college system, you know, better ground states means like in the last five percent like a vote margin. And this, if we target and then customize messages to cross pressures, then it might be possible to like persuade these people. And I also agree that a lot of research has been focusing on persuasion effect. But in fact, what we need to think about is the mobilization and demobilization effect based on identity. You know, for example, you know, going back to, you know, rural urban divide in Wisconsin, 
a lot of advertising, for example, targeted advertising or customized to rural borders in the rural area that emphasize the redneck identity. Mm-hmm. And the redneck is equal to keep the nation safe from illegal immigrants, from different race. And, you know, there is a persistent messages out there online. And then they can mobilize like, you know, this redneck identity in the rural area. On the other hand, in the urban area, they can target relatively new immigrants or non-white voters and then put some like a voter suppression ad. So it is a sort of like an asymmetric like a mobilization based on identity. And then that is far different than like, you know, the persuasion effect that we have been studying. So I think like, researchers have to rethink about the implications of better ground states in the new media environment. Hmm. It's not just about persuasion effect, but it is about creating narrow interest-based identity and then mobilizing and demobilizing just based on the campaign's interest. Yeah, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, so I think the idea of, you know, identity in terms of how voters in battleground states vote, I think that's a really smart, you know, idea. Because if we take a look at basically what those persuadable voters in battleground states are doing. I don't think it's necessarily strictly voting on, you know, specific issues or ideology. I think a lot of it is fighting for that identity that they perceive themselves at. And I think one factor that we've left out, at least in terms of Wisconsin, is there's not just that rural-urban divide, it's also a white-collar, blue-collar divide. And so specifically when we take a look at 2016 and Trump's rhetoric, the policies, the ideology, it's there. But I think a lot of folks responded to the message of, you know, the forgotten person feeling left out, feeling alienated by, you know, the cultural elite who are only specifically looking at, at least in the terms of the states, Madison and Milwaukee. They're not really looking at parts of, you know, northern Wisconsin that border the UP. So when it comes to identity, I think the battleground philosophy isn't just about, well, who are we going to elect? I think it's also a battle for the identity of certain parts of the state. Is the state of Wisconsin going to be the Madison-Milwaukee state, or is it going to be the dairy lands that are those farmers, are those blue-collar workers that are in, you know, more rural, specifically like northern Wisconsin uh, parts? So when it comes to thinking about the battleground, I definitely think we should be thinking about blue-collar, white-collar, because I think that's really kind of where we might see that ideological Mm -hmm. divide playing out in terms Mm -hmm. of identity. Interesting. So if I may also add, that's a very good point because it's also about the attention. You know, if it just becomes, oh, Milwaukee and Madison, uh, one of the reasons uh, Wisconsin is also an interesting battleground is because Wisconsin has a lot of rural areas. You know, it has a big rural population, which compared to some other states. So, and that's why it's also sometimes harder for like predicting voting trends, Mm because here is the rural urban and also the Rust Belt voters have evolved with time. One of the reasons why Trump won last year some people make the claim in some studies that he paid attention somehow to the Rust Belt people who, you know, <laughs> have also been sort of on the fence, even with unionizations changing, unions changing, the Democrats no longer being a party that have the unions in their bag the way they used to. But sometimes I think one thing they missed out on a little bit in the last election, which studies have found, is that there are issues out there that appeal to all. For example, healthcare. 
an assumption was made that, you know, certain groups cared more about healthcare, others didn't. And the, I think the Democrats missed the mark a little bit in some of the swing states where they did not play on their strength as much as they should have with healthcare. So I think that's where we need to do a better job of figuring out what is it that actually matters to these people and catering to those, because it goes back to, do they listen to us? Do we matter to them? And that's the part where we as political communication scholars don't always do that great of a job. One of my graduate students did her thesis, MA thesis, looking at religious women voters, evangelical women voters that supported Trump. And so she interviewed them and she found out that sometimes, you know, it wasn't as if religion played a role, but of course he wasn't the most religious person they knew. So, so sometimes it was, you know, one or two issues they voted on. Sometimes they, they even had a hard time calling themselves Republican you know, but it was more about, I believe in conservative values. So, and some of them had voted for Obama. So it's kind of interesting when you look at that, kind of goes back to the, what is it that appeals to a lot of people and kind of reaching out to them? Because sometimes they just feel that they don't matter. So that's, there's that as well. Sean said something earlier about sitting in the pre-production meetings at the various networks. I'm wondering if all of this sort of nuance and subtlety about mobilization and persuadability and about identity and about voter perception and all of that even figures in to those discussions about the ways in which politics is covered in battleground states or anywhere else? I'll just say that it has, I have seen it evolve over the last four or five years where there was a time when I can remember a time where we actually had social scientists involved in those conversations ahead of, of, of elections. And they talked about, you know, they did their research and they talked about what would be important to cover in various states. That certainly did not happen in 2016, nor, nor did it happen in 2018. That's a le- much less common thing to see in those spaces. But I, do want, I did want to just touch on one brief point on this issue of what drives voters. You know, I think it's also important to recognize that there are sometimes external forces that help drive voters with regard to their own sense of self-import. You know, Trevor, you are probably aware of this, you know, in, in Northern Virginia, you know, people used to say, you know, as Northern Virginia goes, Virginia goes, right? Because people in Northern Virginia, because that's the, the, the highly populated area and they kind of represent what the state actually looks like, even though it's a small part of the state, you know, but they, they drive what happens there with regard to the electorate. And there's a little bit of that same sort of uh, attitude in and around Detroit here in Michigan. So when you talk to those voters, when we pull those voters, right, there was a really interesting, interesting one in Virginia where we found that if you were outside of Northern Virginia, the further south you were, the more you felt you had in common with West Virginians as opposed to with a Northern Virginia. Here in Michigan, if you are in and around the Detroit area, you have your own sort of sort of identity and you have your own sense of self-import with regard to how much your vote matters in comparison to how much the vote of someone in the UP matters. And that's not only the people who live in and around Detroit, but it's also when you ask people in Northern Michigan how much they believe their vote matters, you see that they believe their vote matters less than people in those highly populated areas. I'm wondering to what extent then that sense of your vote mattering and that sense of identity and that focus on a particular area or part of the state influences media consumption. 
And I'm thinking here about the role and relationship of selective exposure to certain types of media, news media in particular, and the ways in which that then circles back on what we would think about vis-a-vis the overall health of democratic deliberation and democratic thought and media coverage in battleground states. I I don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious as to what you all might be thinking about these questions in an ever-changing media landscape. Well, I'll just start by telling you, everyone, uh, one of my favorite exercises that I have uh, my students do, and we provide the resources for them, and it drives them absolutely crazy, is every semester, all of my students, each week, they must watch one hour of each of the three major cable news networks. And then they have to provide feedback on, I have a number of questions I ask them about their experience watching one hour of each of the networks. And I will tell you that I get everything, I get students who come to me and say, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) It's too (laughs) difficult for them. Students on both sides of the political spectrum because they sit through them. What that that does for me is it, it really reinforces this idea that this idea of selective exposure, they are exposing themselves to, they're watching what's consistent with their pre-existing ideological beliefs. Look, I, I think that from my perspective and, and my research interest, this is a, one of the serious issues that we, we face because it's not only uh, individuals who are seeking information that's consistent with their beliefs, but it's also, and this is really startling, news outlets and, and information sources that were previously considered to be reputable are actually beginning to embrace the idea that they fall on one side or the other of the ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. They're not pushing back on that as much as they used to. You can look at some things that are very black and white, like the number of bona fide liberals that Fox News used to employ in comparison to how many they employ today. And the same thing with CNN. They don't employ as many conservatives as they used to, and you don't see as many on air. And that really does reinforce this idea that they are kind of retreating back into this space where they feel most comfortable. So I think that's certainly having an impact on people with regard to how they ultimately behave when they go to the ballot box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Robert. I know far less about national media than Sean and some of the other panelists, but as far as in-state media, part of this is structural. The traditional media, (laughs) like newspapers, have declined dramatically. And it's not just Mm -hmm. technological change. All the mergers and acquisitions through finance capitalism have loaded debt on these newspaper chains. So the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is furloughing all its, let's say, political reporters in the middle of all this, not because of a lack of interest, quite frankly, but because of the way Gannett was purchased, right, and the debt that was taken on. And so there's been a trend in Wisconsin, I think there's two other states, towards nonprofit media, which is partisan media. I mean, most of it, except for Wisconsin Public Radio, which is the, actually has the biggest news staff, which has more of a liberal audience, but has straight journalism. There are all sorts of new nonprofit outlets that are either liberal or conservative. Some of them, like Wisconsin Examiner, have real journalists, but they're progressive journalists, but they have more capacity than their Spotland dailies. So in many ways, it's harder to escape selective exposure, at least in terms of state media, though that's sort of a back to the past. It wasn't, we always had one big national mono media. It used to be in the advanced print age, there were dozens of daily newspapers and you picked up the one that was your constituency or ideology. There were, because I've done a lot of progressive era rhetoric in my academic career, there were 19 competing metropolitan daily uh, newspapers in New York during the progressive era. And you literally could just pick up whatever opinion you wanted, whatever shade. It wasn't just 
one conservative and one, and one liberal paper. And it's interesting you talk about that in in television terms, and I can, I'm hard pressed to think about processing local affiliates according to an ideological lens. But if Sean's right, that may actually, and if Sinclair's ownership of local media across the country is is accurate, that may in fact come into play. And we know, or at least I think I know, <laughs> that a lot of citizens get their political information, not from CNN and MSNBC, sorry, Sean, but from you know these local outlets, uh, the guy that does the weather and the sports, and uh, the woman reading the news, you know, about the crime spree down the street. So, you know, I'm wondering if that, if that also influences selective exposure and the influence of selective exposure. Sumana, do you have yes. any thoughts about uh, I that? I was going to say also, I presented a paper at NCA last year on, you know, editorials that were questioning Trump's claim of the press being enemy of, enemy of the people. So I think it's also the recent rhetoric in the last few years because the polarization numbers in this country have gone up since 2015 when Trump started his campaign and also what constitutes fake news because it's like anything that doesn't satisfy what we believe in you know because Washington Post is fake news now you know so it's also that and and that has created an issue with credibility and a much more selective exposure and I'm not just saying it it's just the conservatives it's also the liberals because right now with the current coronavirus briefings I try to watch them every day but every time I post about it my friends on social media are like how do you even watch it you know like we can't watch it anymore so it's like people who are considered intellectuals are also doing selective exposure now because of the polarization, because of the rhetoric, because of, you know, this whole idea of this is fake, this is not fake. So I think that has also impacted selective exposure more in recent times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just touch on Samana's point, just when you said something I, just, I think is really important that, and we, we've got some data that's showing that this is really significant in terms of how its frequency when people talk about tuning it out turning off the television you know they just can't take it anymore it's really interesting to find that it is liberals it is uh, the the so-called more informed who tend to do that at higher rates and it's actually conservatives who turn it up they consume more of of the information that's consistent with their own values and beliefs so when we look at, you know, I, my liberal friends always are always shocked to find that Fox News, the Fox News Network is the most popular cable news network by far. Mm-hmm. And the numbers continue to grow. But, you know, it's you are much more likely to hear a liberal say, you know, what, I just can't watch this stuff. I'm just tuning it out. Then you already hear conservatives say that because for, for I think for conservatives, you know, it's it's about feeding and reinforcing what you already believe with regard to the other side. And I think that, you know, liberals need to really stop and think about that because not only are conservatives consuming more of what they're, what's consistent with their own values, but they're also more aware of what the other side is saying and believing while at, at the same time, more liberals are tuning out. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how that 
is consistent or inconsistent with what Young May said earlier about how our focus needs to be on mobilization. Because I'm wondering the extent to which these media consumption patterns that you're talking about, Sean, come back in some ways to have an influence on how people are mobilized or demobilized. I mean, one might assume that the liberal who has had enough and is just not tuning in anymore would be demobilized. And similarly, the conservative who is actively seeking out more and more information might be more mobilized. I don't know, but it's an interesting way by which these different competing aspects of politics more generally intersect. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, and I think one thing, rather than just talking about newspapers and TV, I think the aspect of social media matters here. I was talking to my undergrads the other day about filter bubbles. And so we know that about like 75% of people consume information and news through side door access. So not actually going directly to the source, but seeing it posted on Twitter or, you know, indirectly seeing something referenced on their Facebook page. And so with that, you know, if we're talking about you know, source credibility. A lot of people now, rather than going to the fake news media, uh, if they look at it that way, it's, oh, well, my pastor posted this, so obviously it has to be true. Or Bob down the street, you know, was saying, here's this invasion that's happening from, you know, Milwaukee that we need to pay attention to. That gets more legitimacy, even if it's nonsensical, even if it's not sourced. I think because you know, people have this attack on the ethos or credibility of journalism, uh, which I think has been going on. And so now it's, well, if I can't trust journalism, what can I trust? Well, I can trust the people that, you know, I know I like. I can trust my pastor. I can trust my neighbor. I think that's something that is influencing that idea of mobilizing. I think people are using that to indirectly get folks to a rally that can then get them mobilized to vote for a candidate. We did an episode of the podcast with Matt Seeger, who is the Dean of Communication over at Wayne State University. And we had him on to talk about crisis and risk communication in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he said that is one of the biggest problems that he worries about is the spread through presumably trusted, credible networks, your pastor, Bob down the street, Jane from the book club, and their capacity to spread inaccurate information and how that really is a challenge for crisis and risk and health communication, especially in times like this, you know, in the global pandemic. And I'm wondering if if you think that's a function of the rise of social media or is that just, has it always been there? It's just now we do it faster and there's more of it because everybody's on Twitter. I don't know. What do you think? Is that a, is that a persistent concern moving forward, I guess? I think it's kind of something that's exacerbated by, you know, the swiftness of social media. I mean, if we look at basically even traditional media coverage, like Robert was saying, beginning of the 20th century, we see 19 newspapers that sort of been consolidated to a handful now. And so now where do we fill that gap? We fill it with these other forms of media that I think are that same kind of space. I think in terms of the attacks on the credibility of the media, I think that might have to do with political rhetoric that's about you know, anti-establishment. And that's something that's on both the left and the right, whether it's a Trump or a Sanders, you know, attacking the establishment that's not standing up for the common person that's left out. Where do you get that news source now? You have to go to, you know, the grassroots, the non-elites, those that we can actually trust because you have that direct connection. 
So is it anything new? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just something quicker and easier mm-hmm. to access today. There was a time when there certainly were objectively credible sources. I'm thinking about, you know, the research that we did where we looked at Hurricane Katrina and when we asked people who made a decision to leave versus people who made a decision to stay, where they got their information and what caused them to leave. Well, we were, it was really interesting to find out in the African-American community, people who left, if your pastor stood up and said, leave, then you left. And there were no questions asked, you left. We look at messages from those kinds of sources that are across the board, credible sources. When we look at those same sources through in the social media channel, the trust and reliability in those sources is still high, but it's not that sort of absolute, yes, I'm going to leave. So, you know, your pastor tells you to leave in a tweet, then you might stop and think about it. But your pastor tells you to leave when he's standing there in front of you in church and you're going you're gonna to leave. It's kind of what we're, what we're seeing mm-hmm. with regard to the moderating effect of the channel. What would you want to leave our listeners with about the role of political communication in the battleground states heading into 2020 and amidst the COVID-19 pandemic? We can start with Young May. How does that sound? Yeah, so my final thought is that I just want the people living in the battleground states to understand that there will be a lot of a message war in the battleground states. There will be a lot of information. That means there will be a lot of misleading information as well, especially on the digital media because of this targeting capacity. Now, even, you know, with the social media, now even like a low resourced uh, groups or grassroots organizations or political action committees could put some hundreds of thousands of ads on social media or targeted like, messaging on social media. So, you know, at the first level, like, we have to be wary of that and then we need to try our best efforts to diversify our sources and then verify information. But we can't really blame just like a people. I'm so glad that, like, you know, Sean and Robert, like, you know, mentioned about sort of like market factors that influences this like a selective exposure or fragmentation, especially in better ground states. So, you know, it is in part like a market failure. So we need to some kind of an intervention. I'm not suggesting, like, you know, censorship or content regulation, but some like, transparency and some kind of policies about like tech platforms, targeting abilities, some transparency and accountable system for campaign information, that would be much needed. A call for market reform in political media. That's great. Tom, what do you think? Last thoughts. I'll actually do the flip side of that. I think market reform is really important to think about. Those external big factors are important, but at least when it comes to talking with folks in the state of Wisconsin and, you know, how do we deal with a battleground state? How do we deal with rhetoric that's filled with resentment or intransigence and people not wanting to sort of talk to each other? I think we could look internally and Mm -hmm. sort of use some basic argumentation practices or even conflict mediation practices. So we can't really, as individuals, reform the media market right now. We can't easily deal with how candidates communicate with voters, but we can deal with how voters and how two ideologically different people can talk to each other. So one practice that I use in my 
undergraduate class on public deliberation is having people, one, state kind of where they're at. So what's their you know, interest or what's their position? Why do they believe what they believe? So if it's, you know, hey, as somebody from a rural part of Wisconsin, let me explain to you why I stand this way on an issue. Uh, that then kind of gives us this sort of underlying, well, why does somebody believe what they believe? It generates this trust in that relationship because right now we know that, you know, from the Pew Research Center, like 80% of the electorate is opposite. And a majority of Americans say that people of the opposing party are closed-minded, immoral, dishonest. Like, how can we break through that? I think it's sort of saying, hey, let's recognize we're people, we're humans. Uh, here's what I believe. And then forcing the opposition to sort of confront that and deal with it that way. I think that's something that, at least when it comes to my career and where I work, I work at a university that has a very fractured, polarized you know, faculty and student population. And so this is the only way we can actually talk about issues, is if we say, okay, let's hold back you know, labels here and instead take a look at these things from the perspective of, here's where I'm at, here's where you're at, what can we actually do? Is that possible on a large scale? I would hope so, but <laughs> I think it's kind of my hopeful way of saying, Let's, you know, talk to each other individually. Great. A greater call for better argumentation and a little more recognition of our common humanity. That's ever hopeful. Sean, what do you think? Well, Trevor, I'm going to take a look at this from a kind of external influence perspective. I tend to look at these things through a national security lens. And, you know, one of the things I think it's important for people in battleground states to know and to be cognizant of all the time is the fact that in 2016, and again, in the 2018 midterm elections, that, that Russia and other outside influences really tried very hard to influence the way that people think, the way that people behave, the way that they, they relate to their neighbors, and ultimately, to influence the way they behave at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. You know, we did a great job in 2018 in the midterm elections of preventing that, but, but it's still out there. One of the most startling things about external influence, particularly in battleground states, is that in 2016, when we were dealing with Russia, 2015 and 16, Russia was generating misinformation, disinformation, and they were injecting it into the information stream here in the United States, and then investing and making sure that it continued to circulate. In 2018, they were looking at a very different model, and that model was one in which they were simply scooping up domestically generated misinformation and recirculating it in our information stream. So we're actually doing it to ourselves now. We're creating it. And then other outside uh, forces, other uh, nation states can simply put money and resources behind recirculating it as a way to interfere in our elections. So for people in battleground states, it's important to recognize that, as others here said, they're going to be inundated with a lot of information. I think that this is the time for us to be more skeptical and more discerning about the information that we consume. And we need to really be careful about the degree to which that information impacts our behavior at the ballot box. That's great. A call for critical thinking as central to our national security. That's that's really, really powerful. Sumana, any thoughts on what we should take away from this discussion of political communication in the battleground states? 
Yeah, I think a couple of things I wanted to talk about have been addressed by Tom and Sean, especially in relation to, you know, talking to people that don't necessarily see eye to eye, because we get to know what others are thinking once we talk to them. Otherwise, we just have assumptions about them. And another thing I don't like, especially when political scholars call the other side dumb, I think that's just stupid. You should not be doing that kind of stuff. You know, I have strong opinions and my uncle is across the side of the political spectrum, but you know, so civility and also fact-checking. I received this question many years back, I think when Obama was running in 2012, I was on an interview with Wisconsin Public Radio and one of the voters asked me, there's so much information out there, how can I make an informed choice? And even back then I told them, you need to cross-reference. You know, it's a little bit of work, but the information is out there. So be a little bit skeptical if something looks odd or whatever, just go and check, you know. And now we know Snopes and PolitiFact. There are lots of sources out there where you can check your, cross-check your information. So be that voter because my final point is that this is an important election. The country, because of everything that has happened with the pandemic, is going to be in a state where we will need a lot of recovery in different areas. So people need to be aware and remind themselves that their vote actually counts. And also that there might be a resurgence of the pandemic. So just make sure you know that your vote, you're ready to vote, that you, if you want an absentee ballot, you get that ballot or are your, do your credentials check out so that you can go to the polling place. So this is an election more than ever where people need to cast their voice through their ballot. And so I would say that's one of the things I would tell voters in a battleground state because your vote truly matters. You know, if, even if it doesn't as much in a red or a blue state, given the way our electoral college works in a battleground state, your vote absolutely matters. So you should go and cast that vote no matter what. So that's my one thing. I would say three things to them. (laughs) Sumana goes GOTV. That's great. Robert, what do you think are, are the big takeaways here? Well, it's a tough one because I think most of the panelists in the last question, Trevor, were kind of talking about how we make communication better and have what Wayne Booth would have called, he used to call, you know, the rhetoric of good reasons, right? Mm-hmm. To actually make decisions based on the common good or, or the interest of your community. And that, that's been the holy grail since the founding of this country, how to create a structure, how to create an ethic that would do that. And I don't think we've ever achieved that. I mean, the liberal reformers in the 19th century thought if we made everyone read giant policy platforms, they'd become educated. And (laughs) all it apparently did is drive down turnout dramatically, for example. So I don't think there were ever these wonderful media referees that told people what was right and what was wrong. I think, you know, the lionizing of a Walter Cronkite is greatly overstated. Not they didn't do anything, but there was really not. And there was all sorts of problems with mono media, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess in my, I mean, I've been captivated by this as well in my doctoral studies and then as an advocate. And I guess what I would hope is two things here that was really a problem. It's just true with, I think, negative communication doesn't require as much of a high quality messenger, one that's highly credible as as other communication. It seems to be potentially wired. I don't think that's been, maybe it has been, but I don't know. It's been fully established. And so if people could actually begin to question the motives of some anyone doing strategic othering, not just strategic racism, but all the strategic othering, and think about 
is this because they're advancing an interest, right? Because division is in our interest, or is this, and therefore I'm being mobilized emotionally or based on identity rather than some common good. Not that identity can be abstracted. Identity is in all communication and politics. So that's why the term identity politics is problematic. But <laughs> if it's purely that, right? And can we create that facility in people? And I think part of it is a request for people to try to do that. But I think it's another, if there are communicators, and I think there are communicators who actually prefer a more ethical discourse and real deliberative democracy to not go to othering yourself because plenty of them resort to othering in response. And I think part of the rural urban divide is rural people do and and blue collar people do feel looked down upon, right, by elites. And that's been trumped up for strategic purposes, but there's also a reality to it that exists. And so, you know, the H.L. Mencken making fun of all the rubes actually has bad consequences, right, as far as a backlash politics. And so there need to be communicators that try to win in an ethical way. And there, you know, there's a lot of talk about race class narrative, a narrative that gets over division. And we work on that as advocates. But we need a lot of different advocates to try to come up with an ethical rhetoric that's also effective and then to win battleground states Wisconsin by doing that call for an ethical rhetoric that is also effective. That's a great place to wrap up our discussion. And I want to thank everybody who joined me today on this special episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. And I hope you'll join us in the future for a public program that we might be offering at a campus or a facility near you. I specifically want to take a moment, too, to thank Lakeisha Anderson and Caitlin Reinauer, working out of NCA's national office, who organized this public program and who were skilled at converting it into a podcast episode. For more information about NCA's public programming efforts, visit the public programs page on the NCA website at natcom.org slash public programs, all one word. That's natcom.org slash public programs. As always, thanks for joining us on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. In NCA news, the May issue of Spectra focuses on the mental health challenges that confront students, faculty members, administrators, and others on university campuses. This is a particularly timely issue given the COVID-19 epidemic, and communication scholars in the May issue of Spectra offer perspectives on speaking with troubled students during office hours, the struggles that graduate students face, how campuses can address mental health stigma, and other issues related to mental health. NCA members can expect the May issue of Spectra in their mailboxes in early May, when they will also be able to access Spectra online at natcom.org slash spectra. That's natcom.org slash spectra. Also in NCA news, beginning on June 1st, the Communication Research and Theory Network, CritNet, will no longer be active. Current CritNet subscribers can sign up for NCA's new daily weekday email com notes online at natcom.org slash comnotes hyphen subscription. That's natcom.org slash comnotes hyphen subscription. All NCA members will receive comnotes 
And starting May 29th, interested parties are encouraged to contribute calls for papers, announcements of academic publications, event announcements, grant opportunities, and position announcements. As with CritNet, postings are free, except for position announcements. Position announcements on ComNotes will remain free for NCA departmental members. Institutions that are not NCA members can publish position announcements on ComNotes for $100. Listeners, I hope you'll tune into the May 14th episode of Communication Matters, which will feature Dr. Joy Connolly, the president of the American Council of Learned Societies, or ACLS, a nonprofit federation of 75 scholarly organizations that includes NCA. Dr. Connolly will discuss how ACLS advances the humanities and the humanistically inclined social sciences, as well as some recent ACLS initiatives centered on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I hope you'll join us for that May 14th episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C., The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.